Well, my name is Jared. I get to continue our uh, series on uh, the life of David. It's called Unstoppable. We're learning about David's life, Jesus' life, and your life. I think you'll find yourself in the story today. And most of you won't find yourself, however, in the summer of 1967. That was the Summer of Love, and the Beatles released the song, I Get By With a Little Help From My Friends. Some of you wanted to sing with me. Most of you were glad that I stopped. A week ago today, uh, Ariana Grande invited the Black Eyed Peas to join her on stage in Manchester, England, where they were commemorating the loss of 22 lives uh, a month ago at her previous concert there. And as... uh, these Gen Xers, the Black Eyed Peas, joined her on stage. They prayed this in one of their songs. Father, Father, help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people got me question, question, where's the love? doesn't make any difference if it was 50 years ago or last Sunday or what generation or what millennia in humankind We've all shared the same condition, and we've all wondered where love is, where friendship is, and how that works out in our lives. We're looking at David's biography, not only the longest personal story in the Bible, but in all of ancient literature. And the narrator is going to tell us some things today about life, because in his story, we're discovering what makes a leader or breaks a leader, what makes or breaks a life. And what makes or breaks you? Today, we're asking a big question. What do we need when things go wrong? And I'll go right to the bottom line. The story in David's life is very clear. When things go wrong, you need to go with God and you need to go with friends. Easier said than done. Getting friends can be tough. Uh, President Harry Truman said about politics, If you want a friend, get a dog. Very Portland of him, I think. (laughs) So we're going to read today the story about a friend named John. Going to invite you to listen with me. You'll have on your outline as well as on the screen across three chapters, my hop, skip, and jump through. I'll identify when I'm transitioning through those four different sections and Encourage you later today or this week to spend some time in all three chapters. Listen as I read. Section one. After David had finished talking with Saul, that's the king, Jonathan, that's his son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even with his sword and his bow and his belt. Section two. But David took an oath and said to Jonathan, your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, 
I'll do for you. Passage 3. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to count. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Fourth section. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And they kissed each other, and they wept together, and David wept the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. The end of our reading today, the rest of the story tells us this. This is the last time David and Jonathan ever saw each other in life. Now, you know where we've been and where we've come. David has taken out Goliath and now has become a mighty warrior of renown. He is a captain and a leader. And his great successes are arousing tremendous jealousy in King Saul. King Saul hunts him and stalks him and chases him and tries to kill him, and then brings David into his court where he tries to kill him six times, three overt and two covert, the three covert. And that part of his story, uh, Rick and Anne over the last two weeks have just fabulously presented to us in great talks. I encourage you to go to ecc4.org and you can pick up this podcast there if you weren't there in the last two weeks. But let's pick David up here. David probably had plan A. You've had plan A, haven't you? Maybe yours went something like this when you were younger, maybe at this point in your life, and it was, I want to graduate, and I want to get a job, and I want to have a fabulous wedding and marriage, and let's get a house. We're going to get pregnant easily, and we're going to raise fantastic, beautiful, smart kids. Then we want to empty nest and then retire. Plan A. Probably not a bad plan A. Any of that work out for any of you? Yeah, yeah. David probably had plan A. He was the king in waiting. He was chosen and anointed by God. He was successful in everything he did. Plan A. What could possibly go wrong? Plenty, apparently. And he got slapped, as you have in life, with plan B in his life, and he's being hunted, and he's being driven, and he's being chased. In fact, what we have entered today is the most terrible time of David's life. So what's the big message that the narrator of Scripture is bringing to us? I think, I think it's this in part, that in this most difficult time in David's life, it is bracketed in friendship with, with Jonathan. And that made this horrible time bearable enough. Here's your story. When times are tough, you need to go with God and go with a friend. The Mayo Clinic reports that friends are good for you. In fact, they say that friends increase your sense of belonging and purpose. Some of you should thank somebody that you're sitting next to right now. Yeah, they boost your happiness and reduce your stress. 
do not remember the fight you had on your way here this morning. Yeah. They hope you cope with trauma and divorce and illness and loss of, uh, 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 or, or job loss or the death of a loved one. They encourage you to change or avoid unhealthy lifestyle habits such as excessive drinking or eating or lack of exercise. Adults with strong social support have reduced risk of depression, high blood pressure, and unhealthy weight. And older adults who have a rich social life tend to live longer. My question is, why is this true in the human experience? And I think the answer is in a nugget of theology. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're told about the phases of creation. And in the first five phases, God steps back and he says, that's good. High self-regard, wouldn't you say? And in the sixth phase, when humans are added, he said, that's very good. And then immediately you go to discover something that wasn't good. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Here's the story. It was good, 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 very good, not good. So in paradise, where there was no sickness and no sin and no social strife, something was not good. It was lonely in paradise. Why is it that humans are created with this need to relate to not only to God, but to others as well? I think that it's tied up in the triune unity of God, where God said among himself, let us make humans in our image. So humans had to be made to love others because God had love for others. So poets and artists across millennia of human history have said or sung, I get by with a little help from my friends. Can we just find those friends? So today I want to discover with you the three ingredients that come out of this story about what makes a great friend. Number one, here we go. Notice on your outline, notice on the screen. Number one, friends demonstrate consistency. Would you read this text out loud with me boldly together? Jonathan said to David, go in peace for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. I don't know what it means for you to swear, but in our culture, generally we've taken that neutral word and we've applied it negatively. So the swearing tends to be a negative curse. But the word swear is a neutral word. You infuse it with nuanced meaning by its context. They swore in a positive way. And they swore that they would have a friendship together. And they sealed that sworn friendship in the name of the Lord. The highest name that they could endorse it with. But are all of your acquaintances friends? <laughs> Probably not. I think there's two major kinds of friendship. Notice. There's the consumer and vendor relationship, and we call these people users, as long as it works out for me, cost-benefit. Now, users can be some of the most pleasant people in the world, because when we find a user, it's in their best interest to treat you well, 
to cause you to respond in the ways that are helpful and useful for them. Users. The user's needs and rights take precedent. Me first, make me happy as long as you're useful. But the second kind of relationship that we see in our story today is a covenant relationship. Givers. Here, friendship is not a means to an end, but the friendship is the end in itself. I love Anne's wise quips for life. One of them is, go second and win. That's what a giver does. In a covenant relationship, your needs come in second to the needs of the other. Now, think like a sociologist with me for a moment. In most cultures, the user relationship is pretty much restricted to business context. There's a vendor and there's a consumer. And as long as that cost-benefit analysis is continuing to both of our mutual advantage, we continue the relationship forward. In most other primary relationships, family, neighbors, church, the society says those are covenantal relationships. So you're in them because you've chosen regardless of how it works out for you. Now let me make an observation that social scientists have discovered that within my lifetime, in our culture, we have taken the construct of the business relationship and we have extended it into all of the rest of our relationships. Now we evaluate the usefulness of a relationship around a cost-benefit analysis. So in the two or the 300 weddings that Anne or I have performed, most couples in their vows say, as long as we both shall live. I discovered over some of the time that some of them actually meant as long as we both shall love. And actually for some of them, operationally it meant as long as we both shall like. The difference between a covenantal relationship and a convenience relationship. So a covenantal relationship not only is rare for us in our culture, but it is almost hard to imagine what it's like. Now, I'm the first to admit that some of these user relationships are really very pleasant. It's in your best interest to make me feel good so that I'll respond in the ways that you want. And I'll be the first to admit that some covenantal relationships are not always so pleasant because a covenant friend actually cares for your well-being so much that she will call you out in your areas of weakness or failure because she believes in you and she wants your very best. In fact, it may be more convenient for us to hang around associates rather than true friends sometimes. What we've learned from this story is that true friends demonstrate consistency. I'll be there. Stan is one of my friends for life. Over 30 years now, I've told this story once before. It's familiar to some of you. Stan and I have never lived close to each other, but we stay in constant contact over the years, frequent contact, texting or calling, and maybe once a year sitting down with a good meal and lots of laughs. Stan's consistency was tested a few years ago in our friendship when 
I had kind of fallen out of political favor in the organization we share in common. And, and he was with a high, well-known, influential, respected leader and two other guys. And the leader began to say some rather unkind and ungracious things about me. And Stan put up his hand, and he stopped the conversation. He interrupted, and he said, before you go on, I need to tell you something. Jared is my friend. So don't continue until you know that Jared is my friend. And then he let the leader continue. I wasn't there, but I was told that the subject changed. The power of a consistent friend who stepped into a situation awkwardly and potentially at some personal risk because the covenant doesn't say, how's it working for me right now? It says, what is the commitment that I've made to another? And that's what we find in this Jonathan story. He was a friend. He made a commitment to be consistent to David. And when he did that, he immediately put his own future, his own status and even his own life at risk. In fact, when he made that commitment to David, that day, Jonathan attracted his father's hostility. He lost his right to future kingship, and eventually it led to his death. Consistently, consistency can be very expensive. According to Robert Rowney, a psychiatrist and the director of the Cleveland Clinic Mood Disorder Unit, There are certain habits that genuine friends possess. Listen as I quickly read them. Know that they're going to come up on the screen at the end of the talk, giving you an opportunity to do some reflection. Genuine friends, they push us to be more accepting of ourselves. They call us out when we're in the wrong. They're present and really listen. They support us through adversity. They help us keep our stress in check. They keep us humble. They have our backs even when life gets tricky. They make the friendship a priority. They practice forgiveness. And they want us to be better people. Hmm. Jonathan was all of that and more. He was David's consistent friend. Who's your consistent friend? Who are you a consistent friend to? Life changes. We move. Job changes. Phases of life. Friends. It can be hard. Had a beautiful example of a consistent friendship model just recently. Dennis Minter, you may be in this service If so, I just plan to call you out and embarrass you with this wonderful example of who you are. If not, many of you know Dennis and Lynn, great leaders and servants here. I knew that Dennis was a longtime friend of Jim Monaz. Many of you, some of you know uh, Jim. He was a part of this church for many years, not at Beaverton Foursquare. I first met Jim uh, at uh, at Beaverton and then discovered that he and Dennis had this lifelong relationship. Some of you rode your Harleys with those two guys back in the Harley riding days, and I knew that those two guys connected frequently over time. Dennis was on a business trip across the country. You heard that his friend Jim had just been diagnosed with a horrific, rare 
life-threatening disease and illness. Dennis interrupted his trip. He came home to be with his friend Jim. And in the last weeks of Jim's life, just passing recently, he was hospitalized for an extended period. Dennis was one of the few friends that was allowed to put on the sterile bunny suit. I should ask the professionals here what those are called, but to go into the room to be with his friend because he was a consistent friend. When I tell the story, isn't there something in each of us that says, I want to be Dennis to Jim's, and I want Dennis's in my life too. True friends demonstrate consistently. The second ingredient in the friendship mix is friends demonstrate transparency. Would you read out loud with me this portion of the text? And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Does that sound familiar from some other famous person? Yeah. The the second command, love your neighbor as, say it with me, yourself. And Jonathan did. And they opened up to each other because friends open up to let you see in. Now, users spin and they hide and they put up a front But friends invite you into their deepest feelings. They let you see their weaknesses. They let you see their flaws. And friends let others identify their weaknesses and sins and blind spots. In fact, I think the only hope for us really to become transformed people is to depositize a few other trusted people to really tell us the things we don't see. In fact, if you promise not to be mad or defensive, they may actually find the courage to tell you the truth from time to time. Where do we find friends? Here at Evergreen, we're going to launch this fall 10 weeks called Rooted. And about 50 or 60 of you this winter got to go through it. Rooted is an opportunity to make and be a new friend to some others. It's a 10 consecutive weeks starting in the middle of September, going up to Thanksgiving, 90 minutes a week for you to be together with others. Our group had, some, uh, had from uh, late teens to a couple that were retired. And you get an opportunity to be with people that you may not otherwise connect with and simply share your story in a guided context. It is powerful. It is transformational. It is an opportunity for you to become and for you to be a friend with others. Rooted, an opportunity to connect, to experience, and to grow together. Now, I need that. I struggle with transparency. I don't like to tell you what I'm feeling. I'm not sure I like to feel all that much. I don't think it's that helpful for you to know what I feel. When I try that, it feels awkward. I've tried it out and you've trampled on my feelings. You're not that trustworthy anyway. I came by this honestly, and it has been scientifically verified. When I take the EQI, the Emotional quotient inventory, emotional expression is my lowest emotional health category. I have learned not to tell you what I feel. It's awkward for me. The habits that I have developed cause me to feel much better holding those things in. But here's the deal. If I am a friend to you, it's not about my awkwardness. And so I'm stretching my way into it. And so if I tend to 
express myself in emotional ways that are awkward to you, cut me a little slack. Cut me a little grace here. I'm learning my way into this thing. You think you feel awkward? You have no idea what it's like in here. Transparency, tough thing, absolutely critical in the relationship. Friends demonstrate transparency. So we're beginning to put together this formula about friendship. Consistency plus transparency plus service equals friendship. So today we've learned that friendship demonstrates consistency, transparency. Let's add, add the third factor. Friends demonstrate service. Read it with me out loud, would you? Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do to you, I'll do for you. I put in an extra pronoun. I'm sorry. <laughs> Does that sound familiar at all? Maybe like Jesus' favorite question in the Gospels, what do you want me to do for you? Hmm. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Now, the word whatever is, uh, is a neutral word. Uh, we give it nuanced meaning in its context. So, I don't know, if she's 13 and you tell her to clean her room and she says whatever and gives you an eye roll and a shoulder shrug and slouches off to do that, that's infused with meaning, isn't it? That was a very powerful whatever. <laughs> you can make me do it, but you're not going to win. Whatever. How about infusing it with some robust, very positive meaning? Risky, expensive meaning, whatever. Whatever you want me to do, Chris, I'll do for you. Wow. I've just given you a lot of power. I'm going to take that back, Chris. <laughs> True friends demonstrate service. Let's illustrate with this unconditional relationship continuing. This is kind of fun. We'll be fast. Here we go. Over on the left-hand side, there's enemies. And on the right-hand side, there's friends. Those are unconditional. Unconditional enemies. I've decided to mistrust you. Whatever you do or you say, I'm going to have suspicions and doubts. Unconditional friendship. Whatever you want me to do for you, I'm going to do. In the middle are two groups of people, and these are conditional relationships. Allies and adversaries. Go to the next slide and notice on your notes, brief definitions. Friends are unconditional mistrust. And by the way, excuse me, enemies, thank you. you, you that actually drew a little bit of a response over here. Some of you got nervous about that. Yeah, let's go with the enemies. And by the way, Anne gave a fantastic talk last week about how to deal with your enemies uh, if you have some. And trust me, I think we all do. And you're probably an enemy to some folks. Anytime she talks, I assume it's not true. Anytime he behaves, I suspect that it's with ulterior motive. It is an unconditional frame of reference that enemies have toward enemies. On the other hand, unconditional love is, I will support you in everything. And in the middle, we have these folks. There are the adversaries who conditionally work against you if it advances their self-interest. Or they may, the next day, be your allies. They conditionally work in support of you to advance their self-interest. Any of you been confused when a friend has turned her back on you? Well, it could be that she was not a friend. She was an ally. And the moment that it didn't advantage her to be allied with you, 
it advantaged her to be an adversary to you. She didn't change and you didn't change. The circumstances changed. It's called conditional. And when the conditions changed, it was in her self-interest to behave towards you in a different kind of way. And if you have forgotten what that's like, just talk to middle school students about the fluid nature of relationships and who's in and who's out. But the deal is we only cleaned them up when we got older. We didn't change the dynamics. So we're hurt and damaged from times because our friends have failed us. Let me suggest that maybe our allies had some different self-interest. So what does this look like in life? Randy Remington, pastor of Beaverton uh, Foursquare Church, another lifelong friend of mine. Our friendship started when he was in college in Los Angeles. And uh, he didn't know this, but he had an appointment on my calendar every month for two years, his last two years of college. Every month I called him to recruit him to come to the Northwest to plant a church. Now, I'm sorry to say that I was unsuccessful in my recruitment. He went to Minnesota to plant a church. But we did forge a long-term relationship out of those beginnings. Randy and I have supported each other through highs and lows in life. We've cheered each other on in successes and failures. We've both complained to and about each other, to each other. A few years ago, I had one of those professional lows in life. Randy and I shared the same professional context, and I happened to have found myself uh, politically on the outside. I lost social stress, uh, status. Uh, I, I was no longer, uh, uh, no longer on the end of this thing. And in the middle of that, Randy reached out to me. That's what friends do. And I remember the Starbucks on 85th by C's Candy. That's my favorite reference point in life, by the way, C's <laughs> Candy. Uh, when you want to get me a gift, it is nuts and shoes. It's a pound of those. And I haven't mentioned that in eight years. None of you have done that to this point. I'm going to have to prime the pump. So I remember the place that it was. And it was. We sat down for coffee, and he just looked at me. We talked, and he invited me to an opportunity. And over the months, he continued to invite me into opportunities and finally invited me and then Anne to join the staff there as well. Right after hiring me, Randy got a phone call from uh, a, a well-known, highly respected leader. And the leader said to Randy, I cannot believe that you hired Jared Roth. I thought I knew you better than this. Hmm. A former ally who apparently positioned himself as an adversary, to which Randy responded, oh, that's easy. Jared is my friend. Hmm. Service comes with a cost. In fact, friendship always costs. We read in the text that Jonathan took off his crown prince robe and he gave it to David. You can have my preferred future. Jonathan dropped his sword, making himself vulnerable to serve David. And it did cost him. It cost him his career. 
and ultimately his life. Because David had a covenantal relationship from his friend Jonathan. Jonathan was not a user. Notice that Jonathan could have sided with his father, Saul, against David, or he could have sided with David against Saul. Binary thinking. Either or. But instead, Jonathan decided to stay loyal to his father and stay loyal to his friend. How do you possibly do that? When you're between a rock and a hard place, you only have two options. How do you say, yes, I'll take both? Well, instead of this dualistic either-or thinking, Jonathan decided to be loyal both to his father as a son and loyal to David as a friend. It just cost his life to do it in a suicidal battle set up by his father. One of our uh, leaders here at Evergreen (laughs) was a part of the the group of 50 or so that went through Rooted uh, last winter, and Anne has been uh, reaching out and inviting women and men to be facilitators as we're preparing for space for 225 of you to be a part of Rooted this fall. I mentioned it starts about in the middle of September. And uh, one of the leaders was so excited, he just felt honored to be invited uh, to participate and to, to, uh, to facilitate, and he's all excited, and then he checked his calendar. Do you know what is right in the middle of the fall? Hmm? Yeah. Well, yeah, see, you can just name them all. There's a lot of stuff in the middle of fall. All of our calendars are already full. What was his? Hunting season. Hunting season. So he was ready to give Anne a quick call and say, I just want you to know, obviously God's will has been found in my calendar. This is our family tradition, blah, 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 blah. And then Anne did this dastardly thing that she always does with such a pleasant, tenacious smile. She said to him, don't say yes or no to Anne or Jared. Pray about it. (laughs) Just say yes or no to Jesus. Is that just mean? I love God, but don't test me with hunting season. I mean, really, you know what I mean. Life is tough. He calls back and he said, I am going to be a rooted facilitator. Costly, of course. There's not one person out of 225 this fall that's going to participate in rooted without you making a decision to go into your schedule and to carve out room, kicking and screaming with other very good things because to step into a place that nurtures and fosters connection and experience and growth. To step into relationships that are true friendships of consistency and transparency and service, of course there's cost to that. But it's costs that we find in Jesus. Our city recently had an unbelievable attack on a Max stream. <clears throat> One of the men who came to the defense of Two young women who were being harassed is Micah Fletcher. He was injured in the attack after Jeremy Christian stabbed and killed Rick Best and Talison Nakami Michi and injured Micah, age 21. While in the hospital, from his bed, Micah posted this poem I am alive. 
I spat in the eye of hate and lived. This is what we must do for one another. We must live for one another. We must fight for one another. We must die in the name of freedom if we have to. Luckily, it's not my turn today. Hmm. David was saved by the wounds of his friend. He became king by the offerings of his friend. Jonathan took off his robe of royalty and dropped his sword, and David was saved. Jesus dropped his robe and told his followers to drop their swords and died for you. This is what he says in John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And I have called you friends. Let's wrap up with this picture of Jesus. We always end our stories with Jesus, the ultimate one. Jesus is always there for you. He's consistent. You can trust him. Jesus always invites you in. He's transparent. You can believe. Jesus always helps you. He serves you so you can live. What do you need in tough times? Well, you need to go with God and you need to go with a friend. Let's make sure today before we leave this place, we do both. You need to go with God. This one who sent his son Jesus to live, to love, and to die in our place, not so that he could judge you, but so that he could take the judgment on you on himself, and in his resurrection, giving us forgiveness and life. Don't leave without going with God today. It is as profound, and it is as simple as you receiving the gift. We go with God when we say, God, I agree with you that I have sinned. I have messed up. I have blown it. I receive the gift of your forgiveness for my sin I receive your gift of new life, and I receive the gift of your spirit. Come and fill me, flood me, baptize me, inundate me with your life and spirit, making me one of God's children with an eternal destiny and the power to live life now and the purpose and destiny that you have for me. Go with God today. And go with friends today. And go being a friend today. In the next couple of minutes before I pray, as the band quietly plays, would you notice these 10 qualities of genuine friends? And would you reflect about the state of your friendships and maybe make some decisions about how you this week will be a better friend? God, we receive your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness and your life. Help us today go into this fresh week with you. God, today help us give grace. Fill us with 
your spirit. And that fruit of your spirit that includes forgiveness and graciousness and faithfulness and generosity and gentleness and patience and love toward others. We receive your grace. Give us grace. And may our relationships be marked with good friendships that love you and serve others. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.